Well, it's nice to see you all out tonight. Thank you for coming. And we're going to continue our study and how to study and interpret the Bible. And before we begin into our study tonight, let's pray. Father, we want to commit tonight's study to you and the people who are here. We pray that this will prove to be profitable, Lord, that we would handle the scriptures accurately in a way that would leave us unashamed before you as workmen. And I pray that you would enable us to do that and help us to glean some of the important skills necessary for that, and we will thank you for that in Jesus' name, amen. Well, we come now to our eighth study in how to study and interpret the Bible, and a key to proper interpretation is there has to be a proper system of interpretation, there has to be a proper methodology to arrive at truth, and that's what we're after. We're after the truth of the scriptures, we're after God's truth, And if we are to arrive at God's truth, we have to have some way to interpret the written scriptures. And a proper interpretation of the Bible requires a proper system to interpret the Bible. And as we were beginning to discuss last time, there are several false systems of interpretation that people use when it comes to studying the scriptures. And as a result of that, they come to these faulty conclusions and faulty interpretations. We said the first false system was the allegorical method of interpretation, and that is the Bible does not literally mean what it literally says. The allegorist basically says, well, the Bible says this with the words, but that's not what it actually means. There's figurative meaning to it. That's the allegorical interpretation. And of course, there's real problems with that, because if we don't base what we believe on the words, then how do we know what to believe, frankly? Then we said there's the mystical and devotional system of interpretation, and that basically says it doesn't matter what the Bible actually says or means. You don't have to be precise in your understanding of the Bible as long as it touches your heart. If it speaks to your heart and if you have a good feeling about the Word of God, it really doesn't matter that you have to be technical in what it means. That's the mystical or devotional school of interpretation. We said, thirdly, there's the liberal or rationalistic system of interpretation, and that is man basically determines what's relevant from the Bible, what isn't. He uses his own reason and intellect to make that determination. The Bible is full of myths, and it's got some history in it, but it's not inspired by God. That's the liberal rationalistic system of interpretation. Then we said there's the neo-orthodox system of interpretation. The Bible is not the inspired word of God, but if it speaks to you, then it's good and it can become the word of God to you in a real personal way. If the Bible does something for you, then it's true for you, but it isn't necessarily the inspired word of God. That's the neo-orthodox position. And we saw the ecclesiastical system of interpretation, which says it doesn't matter what the Bible says. What really matters is what the church says or the denomination says or what someone says, other than what the scriptures say. That's the ecclesiastical system of interpretation. Then we left off talking about the dogmatic system of interpretation, and that basically says, I don't care what the Bible says, I believe what I believe, and I'm not going to change my mind. And the person who holds to this position is not really interested in truth, And as a result of that, they're not about to concede truth or believe truth. I'll give you a great illustration. This happened in Pocatello, Idaho. We were doing the attributes of God. And by the way, when we take a break, Mr. Kelly's going to do that. He's going to take you on a study of the attributes of God. Very valuable 
study to go through. And we were doing a study on the attributes of God years ago in Pocatello, Idaho, and we came across the attribute of God, which is the hate of God. The hate of God. Now, you can't deny that that is an attribute of God because there are many passages of Scripture that talk about the fact that God hates certain things. Hate is part of his attributes. Well, now we're teaching this, and there's a couple in the church, they don't like it. They like the love of God. They really, really love that one, but they did not like the hate of God, so they made an appointment to come in to visit with me in my office, and they came into the office, and they said, we don't believe in the hate of God. I said, well, that's what the Bible teaches. Well, well, uh, you know, we just don't accept that. So I opened the Bible to them, and I went to a couple passages that specifically spoke of the hate of God, and I handed them the Bible. I said, read that to me and tell me what it means. They took the Bible and threw it down. Threw the Bible down. They said, oh, we know what you say. You know the Bible and where stuff's in the Bible, but we don't accept it. In other words, they were dogmatically holding to their belief about God as long as God fit their way of thinking. But the moment that God revealed something they didn't like, they didn't want it. That's the dogmatic system of interpretation. Now we come to another system that I want to talk about for a few minutes tonight. It's called the hyper literal system of interpretation. The hyper-literal system of interpretation. I'm going to give you some examples from the scriptures where people do certain things as way of illustrating the point tonight of this hyper-literal system. This is the system of interpretation that takes things that are stated in the Bible to a hyper-literal extreme that is never the intention of the text. It disregards contextual data. It disregards dispensational data. It takes passages to a hyper-extreme. And I want you to write this in your notes in capital letters. Write it down there under that list of one to seven things, but write this in your note. A hyper-literalist always, a hyper-literalist always misses the point of the context. A hyper-literalist always Misses the point of the context. I'm going to give you some classic examples of this tonight, right out of the scriptures. The first one I want you to go to is in Proverbs 16. I'm going to take you to some passages tonight. I'm going to take you to a bunch of them in Matthew, but let's first of all go to Proverbs chapter 16, and I want to show you what a hyper-literalist will do with some passages. In Proverbs chapter 16 and verse 31, we read in Proverbs 1631, a gray head is a crown of glory. It is found in the way of righteousness. Now flip over to Proverbs 20 and verse 29. Proverbs 20, 29. The glory of young men is their strength. The honor of old men is their gray hair. Now I ran into a hyper literal person many, many years ago who said, well, you see that person with gray hair? Well, that means, boy, they're, uh, they're really godly. They got gray hair. I mean, it's a hyper-literal interpretation of that text. First of all, let's talk about Proverbs for a minute. Proverbs is proverbial, and it presents a proverbial type of instruction and teaching that is applicable and general. In other words, there are general principles that are laid out. So the point of this is not anybody who has gray hair is a wise, godly person. If a person is pursuing righteousness and pursuing the word of God, and then they have the gray hair, then that would indicate that they are being blessed of the Lord. But this person took the position, anybody with gray hair is supposed to be honorable because they're godly. Okay, so then you've got Charles Darwin. 
said, look at a picture of Charles Darwin. See what color his hair was. Gray. Hugh Hefner. Look at a picture of Hugh Hefner and see what color his hair was. Gray. Would you say that those people are wise men of God pursuing righteousness and an honorable lifestyle? I'd say no. I'd say no way. But a hyper-literalist, you see, they read that, and then they go, they make up something that's almost kind of verse-crazy. Now let me take you to another one. Let's go to the book of Matthew. I'm going to point out several from the book of Matthew. We'll spend some time in the book of Matthew. So the first one that I want to take you to is a very familiar one that a hyper-literalist will refer to, and that is Matthew chapter 7. So I'd like you to go to Matthew chapter 7, if you would, please. And this one, I'm telling you, I've run into this many times. Probably you have too. Verse 1. Don't judge that you will not be judged. There you go. Read the verse. There it is. Hyperliteralists never judge. Oh, we don't ever want to judge. Because if we ever make a judgment, we're going to be judged. That's how a hyperliteralist looks at that verse. It's giving a hyperliteral interpretation that you never make judgments. Now, they neglect that verse 15 of the same chapter says, Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. They neglect that, because obviously, if you read on in the text, it says, well, you're supposed to be on the lookout for false prophets, so you'd have to make a judgment about false prophets, but they neglect the context of that. I come back to my statement. A hyper-literalist always misses the point of the context. And then if you go over, and I don't have you turn there on this point tonight, to Matthew 18, if your brother offends you, go to him, confront him, if he repents, you've won your brother. If he doesn't, take somebody else with you and go to them. And if he doesn't listen to them, tell it to the church. Obviously, you have to make a judgment there. So the hyper-literalist just sees a verse, don't judge so that you won't be judged, and they make that claim that there's the verse, that's what we build life on. I'll show you another one. Matthew 23. Matthew 23. Someone in our church just ran into someone with this one who had a hyper-literal perspective of this. In Matthew chapter 23 and verse 9, Do not call anyone on earth your father, for one is your father, he who is in heaven. You better not call dad father. That's their view. You don't dare call your parents father and mother. What then you get the scriptures that say, honor your father and mother. You see, the point that I had you write in there, a hyper-literalist always misses the point of the context because the context is pretty clear that in verse 1, the scribes and the Pharisees have seated themselves in the chair of Moses. What these guys were doing is they were sitting in religious places of hierarchy. They put themselves in a religious system and they were demanding that people look at them in a father type of spiritual way and demanding that they be called that. That's what they were doing. It's kind of like what the Catholic Church does. I mean, they actually demand that religious leaders are called father. And what Jesus was doing here is he's combating that. He's not saying you can't call your mother or father father or mother. He's not saying that, but a hyper-literalist does those kinds of things with the Bible. Now, I want to show you one. This will get a little bit graphic, but I'm going to show it to you anyway. It's Matthew 19, Matthew 19, and verse 12. And this one really has an impact in history, Matthew 19, 12, where Jesus is teaching, for there are eunuchs 
who were born that way from their mother's womb, and there are eunuchs who were made eunuchs by men, and there are also eunuchs who made themselves eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. He is able to accept this. Let him accept it. Origen, now remember that guy? We talked about him being involved in allegorical interpretation of the Bible. I told you I was going to talk about Origen later. Well, we didn't get to it last week. We're getting to it tonight. Origen read that verse, and he decided, I'm going to castrate myself. I'm going to emasculate myself. So he did. But then, then, after he did that, he started looking at other passages of Scripture Uh, He didn't consider the context of it because in verse 3 of chapter 19, some Pharisees came to Jesus testing him and asking him. He overlooked that part of it. Then he overlooked Deuteronomy 23, 1, which says in the law of God that a person who had this kind of matter wasn't even to be involved in the temple or in the worship of God. And then he read Galatians 5, 12, where the apostle Paul was talking to people who were promoting circumcision. And he said, I hope you emasculate yourself. I hope you castrate yourself while you're doing the circumcision, telling people they can be right with God by that. So Origen, after he had castrated himself, goes, I made a mistake. Boy, you've made a mistake, all right. And now you can't undo the mistake. And as I said before, I think that's what put him over the edge where he went to allegorically interpreting the Bible. In other words, he was a hyper-literalist when it came to reading that verse in Matthew 19. He took it hyper-literally. So he castrates himself. Later, he comes to realize that's not what the text is talking about. That's not what the text is demanding at all. So now he kind of goes overboard, I think, to the other extreme and says, so the Bible is not to be interpreted literally. It's to be interpreted allegorically. And I think that this was part of the thing that drove him to that. Now I'll show you one more that my brother told me about in Dallas Seminary. Matthew 5, if you'd go there. Matthew chapter 5. Matthew chapter 5, and verse 29 to 30. Matthew 5, 29 to 30. If your right eye makes you stumble, tear it out, throw it from you, for it is better for you to lose one of the parts of your body than your whole body be thrown into hell. If your right hand makes you stumble, cut it off, throw it from you, for it is better for you to lose one of the parts of your body than for your whole body to go into hell. This sits in a context, remember the point I had you write down, a hyper-literalist always misses the point of the context. The point of the context was that Jesus Christ was trying to show these people they do not have the righteousness to get into the kingdom, and he's basically telling them by way of all kinds of discussions that you would actually have to be a person who would be totally mutilated if you were trying to keep the law and the commandments and everything that you're saying you have to do to have a relationship with me. And he concludes the section by over in chapter 7, if you flip over there in chapter 7 and verse 13, he concludes the section by saying, enter through the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is broad that leads to destruction, and there are many who enter through it, for the gate is small and the way is narrow that leads to life, and there are few who find it. So he's basically saying, you need to understand the only way to a relationship with God is not by your legalistic, pharisaical, righteous works, Because you're all sinners, and he proves they're all sinners in that text, and he says there's one narrow way into a relationship with God, and that is through Jesus Christ. That's where this whole discussion is going contextually. Now, 
When my brother was in Dallas Seminary, he had a class that was taught by Paul Meyer of the Meyer Minerth Clinic. It's a psychiatric group of people. And he said, he used this illustration. My brother was in class when he told him this story. He said he had a guy come in with a handkerchief and hand him his eyeball. Literally handed him his eyeball. He said, the first thing we do with people when they come into us is take away the Bible. Because they don't know what they're doing with it. They're just reading a verse. They don't know what the verse means. Keep the principle that I mentioned in your mind. A hyper-literalist always misses the point of the context. So, if a hyper-literalist reads in Acts that the people sold everything, pooled their resources, and gave themselves to communal living, a hyper-literalist will say, that's what we need to do. If a hyper-literalist reads that Moses parted the sea so we can go to a lake or sea and God's going to part it, a hyper-literalist Jesus walked on water so any of us can walk on water, Jesus washed his disciples' feet, there's a school down south here, does that, known for that. In fact, we had a guy who wanted to come into this church and we wouldn't let in here. you got to wash feet because of a hyper-literal interpretation of a text that says Jesus washed the disciples' feet. So when the people gather in church on Sunday, they all get together and wash each other's feet. Jesus said that deadly snakes wouldn't hurt apostles, so you got a group down south, they read that one verse. They're hyper-literal in the way they interpret it, and they get into snake handling. And Jesus told the apostles, if you are drinking poison that people are trying to kill you, it will not hurt you. So people say, well, let's drink that in church. And we even have people People known across the world that because Jesus was nailed to the cross and they read that, they think, well, we should once a year be nailed to the cross. Hyper-literal interpretation. Those are just a few of the many illustrations that we could give you from people that just butcher the Bible with a hyper-literal interpretation. Just drive that point home in your brain. A hyper-literalist always misses the point of the context. Always misses the point of the context. It's a false system of interpretation in handling the Word of God that way. God never intended His Word to be handled like that. Now the eighth false system is the isolated verse or proof text system of interpretation. This system of interpretation, an interpreter will pick a few isolated verses and they'll use it to support their teaching or support their... Let me show you one that I think is uh, probably one of the more famous ones. Go over to Philippians chapter 4. Philippians chapter 4. And in Philippians chapter 4 and in verse 13... I can do all things through him who strengthens me. That's a great verse, a great, great verse. That's plastered in locker rooms before football games. Now, do you think that's what God intended that verse to teach? Let's put that verse up in a locker room before we go play a football game. That's just a misuse of the scripture. But there are these people, they take these isolated verses and these proof texts. They'll put that up there. I mean, they'll post that verse up there. Well, what about the rest of it that says that you need to live your life and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and live your life for the glory of God? They don't do that. They pick out the verse, the verse that promotes the whatever the thing is. And that is the isolated or proof text system of interpretation. So those are the false system of interpretation, the eight false systems. And you can pretty much by knowing this, 
when you're talking to someone or listening to them, you can pretty much figure out just where they're coming from because you can tell whether or not they're really interested in the text. Which brings us now to the next question. What is the true way and true system to study and interpret the Bible? Now, the goal of studying to interpret the Bible is to know the exact meaning that the Holy Spirit of God intended when he inspired the words that were written in every context. That's the goal. The goal of interpretation is that we know the exact meaning that the Spirit of God intended when he inspired the words that were written in every context. The goal is to accurately understand every specific text. Every specific text. That's the goal. That's why we go straight through these books of the Bible. We don't leapfrog around. We just go straight through these books because our goal is to understand every single text. And there's only one system that can do that. We dogmatically hold to this system. We dogmatically teach this system. And we defend it. The only true way to arrive at the true interpretation of any passage of the Bible is to interpret the Bible text literally. This is called in the world of hermeneutics, the literal method of interpretation. The literal method of interpretation interprets the text in light of the plain meaning of the words in the text. So, let's go back to the book of Genesis in chapter 6. And in Genesis chapter 6 and verse 14, here's what God says to Noah. Genesis 6, 14. Make for yourself an ark of gopher wood. You shall make the ark with rooms and shall cover it inside and out with pitch. This is how you shall make it. The length of the ark, 300 cubits, its breadth, 50 cubits, and its height, 30 cubits. And you shall make a window for the ark and finish it to the cubit from the top and set door of the ark to the side of it. You shall make it with lower, second, and third decks. Behold, I, even I, am bringing the flood of water upon the earth to destroy all flesh in which is the breath of life from under heaven, everything that is on the earth shall perish. So God tells Noah to build an ark. He gives him specific dimensions, and he tells Noah, I'm going to bring a worldwide flood to destroy everything. And Noah took that seriously, and he took it literally. In fact, many of you I know have gone down and actually seen a replica of it down there in Kentucky, where this has actually been constructed to size as to what that ark was like down there. Well, he didn't fool around with the words when God told him to do this. He didn't invent some allegorical interpretation of what God told him to do. He didn't say, you know what God really wants us to do? Build a zoo for animals. He didn't view it that way. And he also didn't say, use some rationalistic system of interpretation and says, well, there's really no water here where we're doing this. So it's not talking about there's going to be a real flood of water because we're not even around water where I'm building this ark. He interpreted God's word literally. That is the only proper way to interpret the scriptures. You interpret the words literally. Now, let's go to the book of Nehemiah chapter 8. Nehemiah chapter 8. And in Nehemiah chapter 8, we read in verse 8, concerning Ezra reading the law and the other prophets, we look at verse 8, which says, they read from the book, from the law of God, translating to give the sense so that they understood the reading. Now, it's clear when you read that, 
that they read it in exactly the way that God wrote it, and they gave the explanation as to the way God wanted it taught, and they handled his word in a very literal way. That's the way they handled it. In Genesis 2, 10 to 14, you have four rivers that flowed out of Eden. There are four rivers. They're not four virtues. Let me show you one that we're in Revelation 17. Let's go over to Revelation 17 for just a second. I'll show you another one that I think you can interpret literally. I think you can actually interpret this literally. In Revelation 17, 12, we're talking about these 10 kings have not yet received their kingdom but will receive authority as kings with a beast for one hour. By the way, have you heard what's happening with the European Union this week? I'm telling you, this sends chills up my spine. The European Union is now trying to go to Israel and tell Israel they need to give up some of their land to make a home for Palestinian Arabs, and then they need to somehow open this up. This is the first time I remember in a long time where the European Union is putting their hands in the land of Israel. This has serious prophetic implications right now before our eyes. Well, we know that there are going to be 10 major European kings, and the number in the European Union right now is 27. But I'm kind of watching the math on this to see what kings, how many kings get involved in this, or how many leaders. But in Revelation 17, 12, it says that there will be these 10 kings or 10 horns that will receive authority as kings of the beast for one hour. I literally believe there's going to be one hour where they make this deal. One hour. I think that's literal. In other words, those ten kings will actually have a meeting with the Antichrist when this happens, and there will be one hour where this authority will be handed over to him. It will actually take place in probably one meeting of one hour. That's how literal I take that. Now, this method of interpretation was critical to the Reformation when the Catholics were butchering the Bible with their bizarre interpretations. This method of interpretation was practiced by Martin Luther and John Calvin and Ulrich Zwingli, and Roy Zuck observed that the Reformers built on the literal approach. Martin Luther stressed this approach to interpreting the Bible. And again, I state Dr. Zuck. Luther stressed the literal sense, the census literalists of the Bible, he went on to say that the scriptures are to be retained in their simplest meaning ever possible and to be understood in their grammatical and literal sense unless the context plainly forbids. He also concluded anything other than a literal interpretation was not worth dirt. He believed that every spiritually minded believer could understand the Bible if he approached the Bible this way. And John Calvin said that anything other than the literal interpretation was nothing more than frivolous games. Calvin said, it is the first business of an interpreter to let his author say what he does say instead of attributing to him what we think he ought to say. And Eurek Zwingli stressed that one must take the words literally in light of the context. He said to take a text out of a context is like breaking off a flower from its roots. And then William Tyndale said, Scripture has but one sense, which is the literal sense. So the literal method of interpretation is that method of interpretation that interprets the Bible literally, understanding that the words mean exactly what they say in the most simple, direct, and ordinary meaning, unless something in the passage suggests the words should be interpreted figuratively. Now, when we have, for example, ten horns in that Revelation illustration, we get the interpretation later. Ten horns are ten kings. 
So obviously, we're not talking about real trumpets. We're talking about ten horns that represent ten kings. But the context interprets that for us. Now, the literal method is that which accepts the words of the writer at face value in the normal, natural, customary way they're used. For example, when you read in the Bible, Jesus wept, it means exactly that. Now, the reason why he wept, that becomes an issue of critical contextual analysis and study. But he wept, and that's the way you would understand it. He wept. God has put his word in written form, and he did so that man could learn about him. And because God has chosen to use human language as his vehicle for communication, we interpret the language as literally as possible. The golden rule of literal interpretation, this was given to us on an exam. When the plain sense of scripture makes common sense, seek no other sense. Therefore, take every word at its ordinary, primary, usual, literal meaning unless the facts of the immediate context indicate otherwise. Now, our time is gone, and I want to stop here tonight because I want to get into some of these other issues that we're going to address concerning the literal interpretation. But from here on out, we're going after most of this we've covered thus far has been a lot of Bible study methodology. Now we're going to go into some technical areas of study from here on out. So I want to thank you for coming. Good night. The Lord bless you.